Welcome to the first event of Focus the Nation, a nationwide teach-in on global warming, or more accurately, global weirding, that will be taking place on more than a thousand college campuses this month. Most of the events on most of the campuses will take place on January 30th and 31st, but that's our interim break. So St. Olaf actually gets to focus the nation first. Tonight's event has been generously sponsored by the Political Awareness Committee, and we're really indebted to Laura Grockle for making all the arrangements to get David Orr here. I think you should applaud for that. She's back over there. We're also indebted to the College's Sustainability Task Force and the Environmental Coalition for their fine work in making this happen. And we're also indebted to the 30 faculty and staff who have volunteered to share their perspectives with us tomorrow. So we hope you can come back tomorrow for the daytime stuff. But tonight I think you probably came for David Orr. He's the Paul Sears Distinguished Professor of Environmental Studies and Politics at Oberlin College. He is also James Marsh Professor at Large at the University of Vermont, which reminds me of one of my uh, favorite people, a, a, a critic from the 1950s who had an appointment at Dartmouth as um, a professor of things in general, which I think, I've always wanted to be that. If I ever get to that status here at St. Olaf, I'll be really happy. And in, in some ways, David, David is a professor of things in general. Even more than that, however, David is a public intellectual, convinced that professing shouldn't be confined to the campuses that you happen to work on. He is, without a doubt, the most important catalyst for all the recent work on environmental literacy and ecological design on America's college campuses. He's the author of five books, Ecological Literacy, Earth in Mind, The Nature of Design, The Last Refuge, Patriotism, Politics, and the Environment, and Design on the Edge, The Making of a High-Performance Building. The last book describes and analyzes the building of a new environmental studies center at Overland College a building described by the New York Times as the most remarkable of a new generation of college buildings and by the U.S. Department of Energy as one of 30 milestone buildings of the 20th century. The idea, he says, was to apply the liberal arts to the complex issues of, envi of the environmental crisis in a practical way in a particular place. At St. Olaf, we first encountered David in the late 1980s when he convinced Carleton and St. Olaf to embark on a project called The College and the Biosphere, a remarkable failure that is partly responsible, I think, for some of the recent sustainability successes on both campuses, which is always to me a sort of a mark of sometimes you need to fail in order to succeed because we really failed well at that first, of, at that first try. We use David's book, Earth in Mind, in our campus ecology class. Students are always blown away by this passage. The plain fact is that the planet does not need more successful people, but it does desperately need more peacemakers, healers, restorers, storytellers, and lovers of every kind. It needs people who live well in their places. It needs people of moral courage. And these qualities have little to do with success as our culture defines it. David Orr is a man of moral courage, a peacemaker, healer, restorer, lover, and storyteller. He is very clever, but he is not just a wise guy. He is a wise man. Tonight, to jumpstart our teaching on civic engagement, global citizenship, and global warming, he'll be telling a story called Some Like It Hot, But Lots More Don't, The Changing Politics of Climate Change. David.
Jim, thank you very much for that. Uh, really nice to be here. And uh, I'm not convinced at all that uh, climate's changing. It's cold out there. I mean, where, where was it when we needed it? Um, I want to begin. I'm going to uh, talk for about 45 minutes and hopefully open the floor for uh, comments and, and discussion with you. But I want to uh, describe what I think is kind of a benchmark of uh, how far we're going to have to go on this issue. And this is a letter uh, that was written in the Arkansas Democrat, and it's not a letter that was uh, intended as a gag. It's actually a real letter, and it goes like this. It's from a, well, I'll leave her name off it. Um, you may have noticed that March of this year was particularly hot. As a matter of fact, I understand that it was the hottest March since the beginning of the last century. All the trees were fully leafed out, and legions of bugs and snakes were crawling around during a time in Arkansas when, on a normal year, we might see a snowflake or two. This should come as no surprise to any reasonable person. As you know, daylight saving time started almost a month early this year. <laughs> I said a long way to go. You would think that members of Congress would have considered the warming effect that an extra hour of daylight would have on our climate. <laughs> or did they? Perhaps this is another plot by a liberal Congress to make us believe that global warming is a real threat. Perhaps next time there should be serious studies performed before Congress passes laws with such far-reaching effects. We've got our work cut out for us. All right, what I want to do tonight, I want to talk about uh, climate change and politics, and so this is divided into several different parts. I want to go through some things that you already know about uh, climate science. Uh, this is simply part of the public record. Uh, I want to talk about how we think about that issue. Uh, I'm going to describe an effort uh, which I've been a part of uh, for the last year and a half to develop a climate action plan for the next U.S. administration. <coughs> Excuse me, U.S. administration that focuses on the first 100 days of that administration, rather parallel to Franklin Roosevelt's 100 days. Uh, we've been meeting with uh, presidential candidates of both parties. This is not a Democratic or Republican thing. And then I want to close by talking about what I think the issues will have to be as you think about focus the nation. This in every way is a political issue, and it is upon us now as a serious global issue because our politics were not adequate. And we can't let this ever happen again. We cannot come this close to catastrophe ever again. And so the, that's the, uh, the concern I've got. Um, Gus Speth at Yale describes um, climate change as the perfect problem. And on the screen uh, behind me is uh, Walt Kelly's wonderful cartoon character, Pogo, uh, who uttered probably the most often quoted line in cartooning history, and it was, we've met the enemy, and he is us. And climate change is that kind of issue. Uh, and if, if I was to pull out a, a weapon behind the uh, podium here, say a sawed-off shotgun, and kind of casually walk out from behind this mic, uh, I'd have your attention. Because what would kick in would be your fight-flight mechanism. Your adrenal system would kick in. You'd be saying, you know, I've Climate change may be an interesting subject, but I don't need to know much about it. And you'd be headed for the doors. Or you'd be figuring out how to charge me. We're good if there is an enemy, somebody riding over the hill. That's where we're, we have been at our best. Our heroes are mostly violent people. 
and now climate change, and we meet the enemy, and he's us. Uh, it is insinuated in virtually everything we do. It's the perfect problem. And think about the complexity of the science and how you sell, how we sell the complexity of this science. This is a tough issue. Uh, we, we got the first warning when we began to work on the president's climate action plan. We found that the first warning to a U.S. president uh, dated back to 1965. Jimmy Carter was given a more thorough briefing uh, and a more ominous sounding warning in 1978. That was 30 years ago. But the science was beginning to form. It goes back to Seventy Iranius in the latter part of the 19th century. Uh, but we've learned a whole lot. We're running this one-time experiment on planet Earth, but the science is complex, the perfect problem. And then there's this difficulty that there is this time lag between the emission of heat-trapping gases and the actual effects. So by the time something comes out of a tailpipe or a smokestack, it takes about 30 years for us to see the actual uh, effect of forcing the climate in a different direction. And that 30-year uh, lag will drop, uh, I'm told, by members of the IPCC to 20 years because the ocean uptake of carbon is going to be uh, less vigorous and so forth. And so the time lag is going to be, but it's so easy to ignore things that happen 30 years off, even if we knew uh, that they were going to happen for sure. And then there's this inertia of our infrastructure and daily habits. We build buildings, and they have lifespans of 50 or 100 years. Our habits are hard things to change. If you're a smoker, it's a hard thing to get rid of smoking. If you're uh, addicted to cars or whatever, I mean, our habits, there's just a lot of inertia in the system. And then there's this issue of denial. Uh, it's real easy to deny. It just doesn't affect me. It's not my problem. It's someone else's problem. And then there is this issue of left and right. I'm not quite sure how this happened, but there, the Republican Party has been slow to embrace the science. Uh, and I'm going to come back to that to repeat it. This is not an issue, however, that ought to be left or right. The Democrats, for their part, have been slow to come up with solutions. But we've somehow gotten this divided between left and right, and it shouldn't be that. I want to argue, and we're trying to say this in the uh, President's Climate Action Plan, this is an issue that transcends politics. It's not conservative. It's not liberal. It's simply common sense. And the issue has to do with the science and morality and how we deal with this. And then there's this problem of motivation. No one of you can do much about climate change. And so there's no particular incentive to uh, cut your uh, carbon budget or reduce your carbon footprint. It's collective. We all have to do this. And so it's uh, what economists would call a kind of a free rider problem uh, in this issue of collective action. And then there is this issue that uh, has bedeviled international negotiations about climate change. Uh, we want this to be fair. And uh, so it involves what the United States does. But uh, if we reduce our carbon footprint, then we, let's say, aim for uh, to cap carbon emissions in this country at a fairly low level. But what happens if China doesn't or India doesn't? And so this raises all kinds of other issues. The perfect problem. Three curves, and you know them uh, as well as, uh, as I do. This is the Keeling curve. Uh, when David... Uh, Keeling went to Mauna Loa in 1958 to study carbon in the atmosphere. He found out that the uh, carbon dioxide level is about 315 parts per million. We're now at about 385 parts per million. And then there is another suite of heat-trapping gases. If you measure them in carbon dioxide equivalent units, there'll be another 40 or 50 or 60 uh, other heat-trapping gases, uh, halons, bromines, uh, chlorofluorocarbons, and, and so forth. 
Uh, this, uh, the second curve, is from Swiss Re, the largest reinsurance uh, company in the world. And this is simply uh, climate change-driven disasters for which they have got to pick up some of the tab as an insurance company. Uh, the third curve here is from that environmental rag, uh, Fortune Magazine. Uh, this is simply the hottest hots, wettest wets, driest dries, uh, windiest wind conditions, and so forth. Climate-driven anomalies, and they're rising dramatically. And of course, the three curves are related. We'll see more uh, uh, human-driven natural disasters that uh, are insurable or perhaps not insurable events. Uh, we'll see more weather extremes, hottest hots, wettest wets, and so forth. Um, this graphic is taken from a uh, uh, report done by um, Nicholas Stern, who was uh, commissioned by the British Exchequer to develop a uh, report on the, the uh, economics of climate change. This is one of the graphics here, and in this graphic, uh, what you see across the, the top are degrees change, one, two, three, four, up to uh, five, and then down the left-hand margin, a series of categories. There's uh, food, water, ecosystems, and so forth. And so as these things begin to unfold, uh, going left to right here, you start, uh, the arrows start yellow, and then go to orange, and then to red, uh, red indicating more severe than, than uh, yellow, uh, various things begin to happen. And of course, the graphic depicts lots of things. There are two things missing in the graphic. One is that to make this really accurate, you'd have to make a much more complicated graphic that shows interactivity between all sorts of events. Clearly, the hydrosphere's rainfall patterns change, for example, uh, food production will change, diseases will change, ecosystems will change. So to make this graphic really work accurately, you've got to show a lot of interactivity between the various sorts of things. The other part of this that really should change is that a good many of the, those uh, arrow bars ought to start a little bit further to your left. They're already underway. Climate change isn't something that will happen. It is happening. It's here and it's now. The red line depicts uh, where we are at this point in terms of planetary temperature. We've raised the temperature of the Earth about eight-tenths of a degree centigrade. Uh, this is one of the great scientific achievements of uh, modern science, the development of this science of thermometry, taking the temperature of the uh, entire planet. This is what we're committed to. We're committed to something in the range of another half a degree to full degree of warming. So were we to stop emitting heat-trapping gases tonight, we would still warm the planet to maybe uh, 1.4 to 1.8 degrees centigrade warming. That's already in the pipeline. That's a done deal. This uh, finely hatched line is uh, increasingly a consensus figure that we should not raise the temperature of the planet beyond two degrees centigrade. That's the outer boundary of safety. Now, what this means is for climate scientists is simply that uh, as you raise the temperature of the planet, you increase the odds of uh, heat waves, droughts, bigger storms, and nasty events that we're not going to like. So that's where we are. Now, to summarize, when James Hansen looked at the data, and James Hansen is probably the, the most famous uh, climate scientist uh, in the world, James Hansen two years ago said we had 10 years not to understand the issue, not to reach a consensus about the issue, but rather start this deflection of carbon downward. In other words, uh, taking that Keeling curve like that and starting to bring that uh, uh, level of heat trapping gases downward. 
So let's assume that Hansen is wrong, that maybe we had 20 years, and to be optimistic. Remember, we're playing a game here. We're playing Russian roulette with the whole planet, with your future, with all of life, uh, something for which uh, we, we really do lack the words and understanding. So in terms of parts per million carbon dioxide equivalent, this means taking that entire suite of heat-trapping gases rendered as carbon dioxide equivalent units. Maybe we have another 20 or 30 or 40 uh, parts per million CO2E, CO2 equivalent. Or maybe it's uh, only 10 or 15. Again, we don't know for sure. And then finally, that uh, level 2 degrees centigrade. Now, this is something um, science is still working its way through to find out how much forcing we can exert on the planet. That's the level of heat-trapping gases. That's CO2 and CO2 equivalent in the atmosphere. And then there's the issue of how much forcing provides how much warming. That's the temperature uh, over what length of time. We know that there are eras in which uh, a 380 parts per million CO2 drove temperature of the Earth above 2 degrees centigrade warming. Uh, but that was long before we were on the planet. In terms of forcing, this is a graphic taken from the uh, fourth IPCC report that came out last year. Uh, and the red bars uh, and the error, error bars that are part of this simply indicate the level of forcing of various kinds of gases. And then there are some that actually have a cooling effect temporarily. And so, but the net is about uh, roughly, give or take, uh, a watt and a half or a watt seven-tenths per square meter uh, all over the surface of the Earth. That is the level of forcing that IPCC uh, uh, finds. And IPCC, of course, stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the fourth report uh, came out last year. It'll be published uh, by Cambridge University Press um, a little bit later this year. And then the news, if you follow the climate science, and again, I want to make a clear distinction. By climate science, I mean the people who study climate for a living and have to live by peer review, data, logic, and evidence, or they don't eat. It's different. There are many people who politicize climate, but IPCC is the group that is the largest group that studies climate, but there are lots of other scientific reports. This came out, this is a report that was published uh, uh, last uh, fall, and it's bad news. If you read this carefully, it's bad news because it suggests that things can get out of hand, that this is a nonlinear system. There are various kinds of feedback loops. And what this projects, uh, this is one, one slide out of uh, 20 or 30 in this report, what this projects is that natural sinks, and this is really kind of the bottom line here, natural sinks or the uptake of carbon by oceans and natural sinks of forests and so forth has diminished rather remarkably in a fairly short period of time. So ocean uptake of carbon or carbon uptake in, say, boreal forests is, uh, has been dropping. A couple of other graphics uh, taken out of IPCC. This is simply uh, temperature uh, projections depending on uh, what's assumed. Uh, but somewhere in the range of those projections, all hell breaks loose. The theory by which we work is that you can raise the thermostat of the Earth a bit and nothing else wobbles over here. But that's not the world that you read about in the, uh, the morning paper or you see in the evening news where small changes can result in very large effects. And then the warming, uh, by the end of the century, the, uh, this century the warming could be uh, upwards of 
uh, five degrees centigrade or more, and frankly, no one knows for sure. A good bit depends on how these feedback loops work. Uh, a couple of other sample items. Uh, uh, this is a study that came out late last fall that shows that rainfall events uh, will become more severe. Uh, Cleveland last summer, we had two unprecedented rain events, four and a half uh, inches of rainfall. There was a tornado that hit in Brooklyn and, and so forth. But rainfall, uh, the level of rainfall may stay the same, but the number of rain events may drop dramatically. So rainfall per event would go up. This is from the uh, Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research, uh, not uh, kind of a gray establishment uh, uh, kind of group. Everything that is in the yellow crosshatch area is, uh, are places where we could grow and sometimes do grow wheat now. Uh, the blue crosshatch area are places where the only places they project where we'll be able to grow wheat in the year 2050 given the desiccation of mid-continent areas. And of course, the blue, uh, the blue crosshatch area uh, is up on the Canadian Shield, where soils are a good bit thinner than they are on the American Midwest. Uh, this is the kind of thing that if you pay attention to climate science, uh, uh, you see rather frequently. Uh, Arctic ice melting, uh, this is from the uh, Science Times, the New York Times Science page uh, this past fall. Uh, much more rapid melting of uh, Arctic ice than had been projected even a couple years before. This data did not make it into the IPCC fourth report, which uh, many members of, the, uh, of that group said uh, made that report already obsolete, even though they got the Nobel Prize for it. This has increased uh, melting in Greenland. Uh, if Greenland melts entirely, that's about 20 to 23 or 4 feet sea level rise alone, as is the West Antarctic ice sheet. But again, you see depicted here up through uh, 2005, very rapid melting, which is shown here in red. Uh, if I had a slide from last year, it would show even more rapid melting, uh, so that the red is penetrated even to the center almost of uh, the Greenland ice sheet. Uh, this is a graphic of uh, sea level rise. No one knows the exact rate at which uh, Greenland will melt, or the West Antarctic ice sheet will melt, or the Arctic ice will melt, but it's been much more rapid again and projected. So coastal areas will be inundated. And we, uh, you recall with Katrina what happened when we had refugees from a single American city. Uh, extend that uh, around the perimeter of the East Coast, uh, the precedent that we set in New Orleans will set in Miami and in Savannah and in Charleston and Baltimore and New York and Washington and so forth. Uh, I want to draw this, uh, this part of the talk to a conclusion with two slides. Planetary warming or global warming is the wrong way to depict this. This is planetary destabilization. And it means rising sea levels and the thermal expansion of water and melting of ice. It means uh, possibly more storms, but certainly larger storms. And that's known with uh, some degree of certainty. Changing disease patterns, more famine. Drought and heat waves become much more likely, particularly in mid-continent areas. Changing ecosystems as rainfall patterns and temperature patterns change and uh, disease and pests begin to move. Coral bleaching now affects about half the ocean, uh, corals in the oceans, and that will increase. Climate change won't be contained in this box called climate, but it will spill out into virtually everything else that we do. 
political and economic disorder are a natural uh, occurrence or natural outgrowth of climate change. The death toll now from climate change-driven weather events is about 150,000, according to the World Health Organization. They're about to put out a report which will show that that number will increase to a minimum of about 300,000 per year by the year 2030. And it could, of course, be much higher. So in summary, we're already committed to a substantial warming. There's not a thing in the world anybody in this room or all of us collectively could do about it. That's simply in the pipeline. If we deal with a system where there are very serious lags between the, the foreseen event, what comes out of our pipeline or our smokestacks and tailpipes, and the uh, actual uh, weather behavior. Thirdly, it is too late to avoid trauma. Uh, for people in low-lying areas, the trauma is already hitting. The people in Darfur, the trauma, climate-driven weather events, uh, the desiccation and famine that results and political turmoil, that's already hit. There is no easy way out of this. There is no magic bullet solution. It will not be nuclear power. There is no technology that will save us. There are lots of little things as what Bill McKibben describes as silver buckshot kind of answers, but there is no silver bullet. I think Al Gore had it right that this is the first planetary emergency since we've been on the planet. Angela Merkel, uh, the German chancellor, uh, describes what we'll have to do in this country. Your uh, emission of heat-trapping gases and mine run about 22 tons CO2 equivalent per person per year. We'll have to drop that back, if you look at simply the big numbers, to about two tons per person per year. That's a 90% reduction. The, uh, the interesting part about this slide is that this really depicts what uh, international politics will be like over the course of the next 10, 20, 30, or 40 years until we strike this bargain. And you'll note that military power doesn't have anything to do with this. Economic power doesn't have anything to do with this because uh, less developed countries, China alone could tip the balance into a climate disaster. Uh, this could be alone the thing that trips uh, uh, runaway climate change uh, that we won't like at all. Uh, so we'll have to come to some kind of global agreement about climate change and what we do about it. Now the bargain is going to be they will let us survive, or probably they'll let, uh, uh, we, we will survive, but we're going to have to give them equity. And you think about this, it has nothing to do with the size of our armed forces, that's simply irrelevant. Or the size of our economy, that at some point becomes a liability, not an asset. What do we do about it? We assembled a year and a half ago, we began to work with a, um, a group of climate scientists and climate policy people. Uh, you can go to the website, climateactionproject.com, uh, download the whole document. Uh, the final version of this document will come out in uh, uh, September. We'll unveil this uh, probably on the Capitol steps, hopefully with a thousand people representing a variety of different organizations. But we've made a couple of assumptions. This is the first assumption. Objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. That climate change is here, it's on us, it's happening, it's happening much more rapidly than anybody thought it would. This is simply the truth of the matter. Secondly, that this is not an issue and should not be made an issue that divides us left and right. This is an issue in which we need conservatives and we need liberals, we need independents. This is a national emergency. It's a global emergency. It should not be allowed to become uh, the uh, dominant issue of the left or of the right. We need to come together on this issue. So 
This is one in which, in this election year, as we talk about uh, politics and the future of this country and your future, uh, we need to come together. And we need to come together with the best thinking of conservatives and the best thinking of liberals and independents and all of us working together. Third assumption we've made is that climate change isn't an item on a list. It is, in fact, the linchpin that holds the list together. And if you start with energy policy alone, if we get energy policy right, and I'm going to come back to this later in the talk, we can get lots of other things right. We can decarbonize the U.S. economy. We can solve a problem of jobs and economic weakness and economic robustness in a very different kind of world. We can get out of the Middle East unless we want to be in there for other reasons, but being there because we have to be there militarily and being there because we want to be there are very different kind of policies. But the issue here is, again, that climate change isn't just an item on a list. It is the thing that ought to hold the list together. Fourth assumption is this. Uh, that's Jack Nicholson in the uh, upper left-hand corner. Uh, and you recall the movie A Few Good Men. Uh, Tom Cruise, the uh, young JAG attorney, has got Nicholson, the uh, commandant of the uh, base, on the stand, there's been a murder and so forth, and Nicholson knows a good bit about it, or his character does. And so Cruz turns to Nicholson and says, I just want the truth from you. It's a very tense scene. And Nicholson says, he spits out these words, you can't handle the truth. Remember that? Well, there's a certain view that you can't handle the truth. T.S. Eliot said, you know, humans can't take much reality. And maybe that is true. But we've made a different assumption in the PCAP document. It is that uh, we can handle the truth, and we need to be told the truth. Uh, the character down at the lower right-hand screen, I like this picture because the photographer, by the way, got this picture of Winston Churchill. He was a cigar-smoking guy, and he reached over and grabbed the cigar, as the story is told, out of Churchill's mouth. The scowl was a result. It wasn't posed. That was actually what he was saying. You took my cigar away. Um, <laughs> But Churchill, uh, as, as bombs are falling on London in 1940, Churchill didn't say, hey, what a terrific opportunity for urban renewal. Or, gee, we can beat the Nazis and make a profit. He just said, I have nothing to offer but blood and toil and tears and sweat. And he summoned the British people to a level of heroism they otherwise would never have achieved. That's what we've assumed in the PCAP doctrine or, or document, that we need to be called to sacrifice, to heroism, to ingenuity, to creativity, to community, and to act for the long term. And that uh, summons has not been made yet. Whether it's blood, toil, tears, and sweat, or whatever it might be, we need to be summoned to a quite different level of public behavior as citizens. This is a graphic you can download in, in the document. Um, this is uh, on the, the brown here is business as usual right above my head. This is the PCAP recommendation. We're calling for an 80% reduction. We may raise that to 90% uh, reduction of carbon by the year 2050. Uh, the other various plans, including uh, Warner Lieberman and, and some of the other bills are depicted here. Uh, we've called for a uh, cap and trade system with possible use of taxes selectively applied where they're appropriate but a cap-and-trade system that sets a level at 450 parts per million, and we, again, may reduce that to 400. And then uh, auctions off the allowances uh, to emit carbon, so that as the auction, the sale of those uh, allowances takes place, a fund is created 
uh, to fund uh, research and development and to pay the cost of this energy transition for the people uh, least able to afford it, whose energy purchases are highly inelastic. Uh, what are the various options before us? This, was, uh, this is a very famous uh, way to portray this. This is uh, Rob Sokolow and Stephen Pakala's uh, depiction of uh, the wedge strategy. Every wedge here is a different kind of option for us, efficiency in coal and uh, nuclear and a variety of other sorts of things. But each wedge eliminates about 25 billion tons of carbon over 50 years. And the one at the top has been left blank because there will be a lot of things that come up that we don't uh, know about now, but technical innovation will occur. Uh, so as we, uh, the red line here depicts the deflection downward of heat trapping gases. The straight line above here, above the green, is simply business as usual. Uh, that would take us to a disaster. So in, in a variety of wedges here, how do, we, how do we think about this? Well, here's the criteria we've tried to apply, again, for the next administration. Number one, whatever we do can't be just a matter of problem switching. It's got to be problem solving. So we can't just move uh, the problem of carbon and create a problem of equity or a problem of economics or problems of public security. So this has got to be about solving problems, not simply switching the kind of problems that we have. Secondly, we try to think through how do we build a policy for climate and carbon that in fact, uh, in, in Wendell Berry's great phrase, solves for pattern. Could we begin to think about an energy policy and a climate policy that uh, solves for other kinds of things, like global security? And so could we begin to build a policy in which climate change, again, is the, the linchpin that holds lots of other issues together? Thirdly, whatever we do has got to be technically feasible, and it's got to be technically feasible pretty soon. But uh, there are a lot of things being proposed that simply at this point are not technically feasible to do, or we, we don't know that they're technically feasible. The metric here is real simple. It's one every businessman would know or every business person would know, and that is that we'll measure the success of policy options by the amount of carbon eliminated per dollar spent. And don't forget that. As we think about a variety of things, there are some things that we that might eliminate carbon, but they're pretty expensive. But if that money could be used uh, more effectively to take out more carbon out of the atmosphere someplace else, then that particular option would fail. It's got to be deployed quickly. Uh, remember James Hansen, 10 years maybe, maybe it's 20 years. But things that we might deploy or do that we could phase in 30, 50, 70 years out there don't help us much reach that deflection point. It's urgent that we get to that point very quickly. And then finally, whatever we do, we want to make sure that to the extent that we can do this, it's resilient and redundant and repairable. And it begins to fit local economies. Uh, so I'll come back to this point in just a minute. Let's take a look, first of all, at coal. Uh, it's said that coal is so abundant, and uh, you now uh, read lots of advertisements or see lots of things on television with small kids and little picket fences and clean coal, and we're doing this all, you know, clean coal is uh, something of a, an oxymoron, I think. But if you look at the fuel cycle for coal, that's what it looks like and it creates lots of different problems at every stage. Uh, once you burn coal, you end up with a toxic uh, waste. You've got to do something with it. It's got head loaded with heavy metals and so forth in it. I'll come back to carbon sequestration in just a moment. Uh, one of the things I've worked on the last uh, four or five years is this issue of mountaintop removal. But in Appalachia, uh, the way we mine coal and mountaintop removal, for, if you don't know the, this, 
uh, we take these mountains in this wonderfully fecund part of the world and we simply lop off the tops of them and we dump the, the tops of the mountain down into the valleys. Uh, it's called overburden, kind of an interesting uh, way to frame it. Uh, and then uh, we leave behind what is basically uh, very large gravel pits. And mountaintop removal now has uh, obliterated about 1.5 million acres of uh, West Virginia and Kentucky and Virginia. Uh, it's now moved into Ohio. Another million acres is uh, now under uh, development in various kinds of ways. Uh, a thousand or more miles of streams have been buried by uh, mountaintop removal debris. Uh, in West Virginia alone, there are a couple hundred large slurry ponds because coal is washed on site and leaves behind kind of a witch's brew of stuff that if you uh, uh, took a soup ladle and ladled it out, it's kind of like asphalt uh, diluted with gasoline. But uh, that's mining coal. And our record on reclaiming coal mined lands to the extent they can be reclaimed at all is a national disgrace. It certainly is in West Virginia. And coal, this is uh, a graphic taken from Ed Masria, who's a wonderful architect and uh, developed something called the Architecture 2030 Goal. It is to design buildings that are carbon neutral by the year 2030. This is the forcing potential of uh, oil and gas, but this is the forcing potential if we were to burn all the coal that is presently available to us. So coal is not a uh, uh, trivial issue. This is Dick Cheney's uh, uh, energy plan. It calls for 150 coal-fired power plants, roughly 1,000 megawatts each, to be built all over the United States. If they're built and operate to the end of their effective lifespan, and without uh, carbon sequestration, uh, they'd emit more carbon than we've released as a nation from 1750 to the year 2000. Game's over. We're done. Um, so there is this issue then, could we build coal-fired power plants and sequester the carbon? By sequester the carbon, it means simply get the carbon either prior to combustion or after combustion underground. Well, let's take a look at this. Can we do it? No one's ever done it at this scale. Uh, this would involve about uh, 600 or 700 uh, large coal-fired power plants. No one has ever put supercritical carbon below ground at that scale. Uh, we've done it at a smaller scale, but no one knows whether it could be done at this scale. No one knows for sure whether it could be done permanently or not. And if you can't hold carbon below ground, uh, in essence, in perpetuity, why do it in the first place? No one knows what this would cost. Uh, Electricity in this country is uh, around nine cents per kilowatt hour, give or take. Uh, would this add three cents, four cents, five cents to a kilowatt hour? Well, we don't know. The cost is simply one of these big unknowns. And then it's got to be cost competitive with the next cheapest alternative. So it's got to compete, or it should be forced to compete with efficiency and renewables. And if it can't compete, why do it? And then it's got to be measured against, again, this standard that every good business person would apply, how much energy does it take to sequester carbon compared to what you put in? So this input-output ratio of energy return on investment. Well, what about nuclear power? Uh, nuclear power is uh, undergoing something of a renaissance in public opinion. Uh, it is uh, on lots of covers of magazines. This is the uh, Davis-Bessey nuclear uh, power plant about 50 miles from where I live. I uh, put this on the screen because this plant came very close to a core meltdown, a loss of coolant accident a few years ago. 
the problem was discovered when a workman happened to lean onto a pipe or lean against a pipe that went into the containment vessel holding all that nuclear material. And the pipe broke off and they found a, uh, basically a diameter of a football size hole in the containment vessel. How close it was to uh, loss of coolant accident or core meltdown, I don't know, but that's a concern to me because I'm in the outer, the, the town of Oberlin, where I live, is in that outer range of the evacuation zone in the event of a bad nuclear accident. Well, nuclear power. First of all, it's the most subsidized of energy sources. The energy bill of 2005 gave the industry $13 billion of subsidies. Uh, think of what that could have done for efficiency or for renewables. Safety issues have not been resolved. And safety with this nuclear power plant, it's like a high wire uh, act. You can do it and do it, and it's safe and safe and safe until it's not. And at the point where you fall off the high wire or you have a Chernobyl or Three Mile Island scale of accident, then it's all over. Uh, safety issues also uh, concern terrorism on 9-11, uh, of 2001, had terrorists decide to crash planes into the Indian Point nuclear reactors, the four, just north of New York City on the Hudson River, uh, it very likely could have caused us to abandon New York City, blanketing New York City's radioactivity, making it uninhabitable. So nuclear power is, uh, in many ways, simply a high wire act. And there's the issue of weapons proliferation. If you can make a reactor, uh, you're a long way toward being able to make a bomb, and that's what uh, President Bush is concerned about in the case of Iran, and I think with, uh, legitimately so. There's the issue of cost. Nuclear power uh, runs uh, somewhere between four and eight billion dollars per thousand megawatts. Uh, this is very expensive, and all you really do with nuclear power is to boil water. There is the net energy issue, and this is something, uh, pay attention to this. This sounds very esoteric, but it is critically important. It's possible for a society to bankrupt itself without really knowing what it's doing. So in nuclear power, you have to look at the energy that starts with the mining of radioactive material, uh, ra uh, uranium, then the fuel enrichment, and then the construction of the uh, reactor, then the operation of the reactor, then the entombment. You don't just walk away from these things. The thing has got to be entombed, and that's expensive. Then you've got to store the waste. So it's the energy that goes into all phases of that minus the energy that you get out of it, energy return on investment. And we don't know what that is with nuclear power. There's the issue of waste storage. We've had this stuff around for a long time. We've got to store it for a quarter of a million years. Uh, this raised the issue of what language and what language we write the warnings outside a nuclear waste depository. English will be long since dead and forgotten. And then there's the issue of civil liberties. If you have a windmill or a solar collector, or a very efficient home or building or college, it's not likely the FBI will need to keep a dossier on you. But if you've spoken out, or part of any organization that's spoken out against nuclear power, they're likely to keep a dossier on you. This issue has simply lost, uh, not been included in the public debate about nuclear power, but this is a civil liberties implicator issue now amplified by the issue of terrorism. And then, I'm not going to go into this uh, any more, but just uh, note the Price-Anderson Act here. This is the insurance uh, bill that was passed at first in 1957. It's still on the books, uh, altered a good bit, and the numbers are raised. But Price-Anderson guarantees uh, the industry that in the event of a major accident, uh, their liability is limited. Who picks it up? You and I do. 
And so the public will pick up, if there is a charitable scale accident, uh, that becomes your liability and mine. Private industry wouldn't touch it. Private industry would not build a nuclear reactor without a huge amount of uh, government support. Well, biofuels, another one of those wedges is can we grow fuels? Can we make fuels out of uh, vegetative materials and so forth? Well, possibly, but again, the issues are uh, complicated. And they're not complicated uh, in ways that we're used to having uh, public debates about. Here is energy return on investment again for biofuels and uh, fuels generally. If you had invested in, uh, say, spindle top in the early part of the 19 uh, or the 20th century, uh, you could t put in one dollar of uh, investment, take out roughly a hundred dollars of uh, profit, and so uh, that was roughly the uh, the energy return on investment at that time. Notice how that has fallen over time. So even things that are good, like photovoltaic panels and wind power and so forth will never give us the same kind of energy return on investment that the early portable, cheap fossil fuels gave us. Uh, in the case of biofuels, notice this uh, third from the bottom. Entire corn crop in the United States is only 12% of our U.S. gasoline use. And notice that if we grow corn for uh, ethanol, we've got a real problem because now we've put food production and fuel production in competition. And that's not a good thing to do. And to grow corn, it's a heavy nitrogen user, so uh, where does the excess nitrogen go? Well, it goes down to Mississippi. What does that do? Well, that's the dead zone larger than the state of New Jersey off the mouth of the Mississippi River. That was once the largest commercial fishery in the United States and the third largest commercial fishery worldwide. And now it's essentially a dead zone, uh, anoxic, and doesn't grow much of anything at all. Um, now, I want to switch gears. Do we have other options? We have always had other options, and the failure to seize these other options isn't a matter of economics, pure and simple. It isn't a matter of technology. It's always been a matter of politics. Uh, the guy's face on the, uh, the screen behind me is uh, William Paley. In 1952, the Paley Commission report uh, projected that solar power could heat and power 13 million homes by 1975. Of course, it did no such thing. What happened was it wasn't the technology failed, it was that oil simply outpriced it and coal outpriced it. Those things were highly subsidized and solar wasn't subsidized. Uh, in 1974 here, the Atomic Energy Commission said that by 2000, solar could provide 30% of U.S. energy needs. Did it? No. Why didn't it? Well, it's because the lobbies that support coal and nuclear are very well funded and very intense. Where's the lobby for efficiency or for conservation or for wind or solar? They exist in some ways, but they're very diffuse and very poorly funded. Uh, Amory Lovins, who's one of the real heroes in this movement, uh, founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute. In 1976, Lovins published a, uh, what is still the most reprinted article in foreign affairs history, and he projected two different curves. The red curve going off the top was what he called the hard path. And we were on the hard path in the 1970s. In 1973, the first Arab oil embargo got our attention to energy issues. And everybody was thinking about how do we increase the supply of energy? So everybody went over here to the supply side and said, well, gee, we're going to extrapolate all these uh, energy growth in the United States. We need this many more coal-fired power plants and nuclear power plants and more drilling in the Arctic and all these other places. Lovins did something radically different. He went to the other side of the equation, the demand side. 
This is where we use caulk guns and insulation, efficiency and ingenuity. And he said, look, if we're as smart as we ought to be using the technology that's already on the shelf and available to us, uh, we could be on the soft path. We would not have to then invest all this capital uh, in building uh, 150 coal-fired power plants and hundreds of nuclear power plants. Uh, with all the intrusion and all the damage that that does, and also robbing capital markets of all the capital that goes into hospitals and education and other kinds of things that we want. The black line here depicts more or less uh, where we've been on that path, partly for reasons Lovin didn't anticipate, notably the uh, large-scale deindustrialization of the U.S. economy. What's the transition that Lovin's and others uh, projected? Well, it was really kind of simple. Start with efficient transport, uh, the CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel efficiency standards, which have just been raised to 35 miles per gallon, hurrah. Uh, the technology capability now is well over 50. Uh, in the PCAP uh, uh, document, we're calling for a standard of 100 miles per gallon by 2050. There are people who will uh, argue that we could do 200 miles per gallon by 2050. You'll notice the business page of the New York Times two days ago uh, said that Prius, uh, or Toyota Prius, is making a plug-in hybrid. And you'll recall right after the Prius came out, a couple of uh, inventors in California or someplace took the Prius hybrid that's rated at 45 to 50 miles per gallon, changed the battery pack, and raised the fuel efficiency up to 200 miles per gallon. Just a wee bit of ingenuity applied to this. But we can do better than 35, and we're going to have to do better than 35. Um, Second item is high-performance buildings. Could we build buildings like Ed Masria and the Architecture 2030 Challenge proposes that are carbon neutral by 2030 and use half the carbon that's available or, or typically used in building uh, construction now by 2015? Absolutely. That, again, is not a matter of technology. It's not a matter of design. It's not even a matter of economics. To the contrary, it's good economics. It's a matter of leadership and choice. And then there is... Uh, rethinking the energy system. No one of you has a mainframe computer, for good reason. You are linked into a distributed computing system. That's a semiconductor kind of technology. For the same reason, we ought to be thinking about distributed energy production with lots of small, uh, lar large numbers of small producers, lots of photovoltaic arrays on roofs, lots of windmills like you have in, in this town, uh, lots of uh, small microturbines and hydrogen generating facilities and so forth. And then, what about this? Could we begin to rethink the prices? When you burn coal-fired electricity, what's the price tell you? Well, the, base, the price for baseload coal is two to three cents per kilowatt hour. That sounds pretty cheap. What's not in that price? Well, what's not in that price is my uh, uh, good friend, Maria Gano, uh, who is under constant surveillance, whose life has been threatened repeatedly because she opposes mountaintop removal in her backyard that has destroyed the woods and forest around here and a good bit of her property with flash floods that now come down off that uh, mountain. Uh, the price of that's not in it. The people, uh, 20,000 to 50,000 people that die prematurely every year, uh, their deaths are not in it because they're simply anonymous to us. And since we don't know who they are, they can't bargain with us. So the price of electricity, that two and a half cents uh, per kilowatt hour, uh, that doesn't include a lot of things. It certainly does not include a carbon charge. The right to emit that carbon from coal is simply granted as a, a free right. And then uh, could we change taxes, put taxes on things that we don't want, like carbon, like toxics, and take them off things that we do want, like profit, like employment. 
And then finally, could we take that uh, 1.4 to $2 trillion of subsidies for things that we don't want in the world, could we remove those and uh, do a whole lot better? Could we make the United States work with efficiency and renewables? This is a report that was done by the American Solar Energy Society uh, spring a year ago. And they looked at the, uh, the United States and they concluded that, yeah, we could get 80% uh, or better uh, toward the goal of carbon neutrality simply with efficiency and renewables. And as they looked across the country, the map depicts a variety of different kinds of energy sources. They looked at the United States and said, look, we're not an energy poor country. Yeah, we, don't, we have to import a lot of our oil, but then we have lots of other ways to develop liquid fuels. The United States is not an energy poor country. We are an energy rich country. Um, could we exploit those? Does the technology make economic sense? And so uh, you look at the cost curves for all the renewable energy technologies and they drop dramatically. And think of what would happen if uh, there was actually a policy to implement efficiency and renewables around the entire country. This makes explicit uh, economic sense. Back in the, the 1970s, uh, Amory Levins and others put together a list of uh, benefits of efficiency and renewables. And look at this. They reduce imported fuels, thereby dependence on Middle Eastern oil, hence military engagement in an unstable region, lower the balance of payments deficit, reduce costs of energy, create employment, stabilize climate, minimize oil spills, clean our air, improve our health, reduce medical expenses, remove influence of oil in U.S. politics, improve democracy at home. <laughs> now, every one of you, if we had another hour or so and you say, hey, let's extend this list, we'd have a list of 100 or more benefits. We could make this list almost infinite. Is there a downside to this? No. And we've known since the 1970s that our best options were to figure out how to push efficiency and how to begin to phase in renewables. We've known this for a long time. Uh, what's that look like? Well, it looks like this curve. The, uh, the green curve at the top is uh, energy use per U.S. household on average. The uh, yellow curve below that is uh, the California energy use. Uh, California, that pit of uh, economic destitution and misery. <laughs> they use less energy per household. Now, a California uh, energy bill arrives at a household, they pay a higher price per kilowatt hour, but a lower bill. How do they do this? Well, they figured out how to decouple sales from profitability. Isn't that interesting? So utilities could sell customers efficiency and renewables and so forth, and they could still make a profit. So they did something that was counterintuitive, and it works. And as that economist uh, Kenneth Boulding once noted, whatever is, is possible. And so efficiency is possible. It is possible to deliver these things. What's this look like in terms of a technology? Well, if you bought a refrigerator, uh, say 15 or 20 years ago, you bought a machine that used 1,750 kilowatt hours of electricity per year. State of the art now is around, give or take, 200 kilowatt hours per year. You can easily go to Sears and buy a Kenmore refrigerator, Energy Star related, that's 300 to 350 kilowatt hours per year. Better machine, same size or larger, a fraction of the energy use. This is the efficiency revolution. It's taken place in refrigeration, in lighting, in HVAC equipment, in automotive equipment. It's taken place across the board. It is a sweeping revolution. Let's take advantage of it. Renewable energy. This is one of uh, two arrays on the, uh, the Lewis Center at Oberlin College. This is a 60 kW array. If you look at the price 
uh, per kilowatt hour. The price for kilowatt hour is dropping dramatically. In 1980, uh, I built a, a solar house with a PV array that cost $22 per kilowatt hour. We didn't use much electricity. Uh, this array comes in at around 14 cents per kilowatt hour. The market uh, going dramatically, but you'll notice also a couple of things here. Blue on the uh, bar chart behind me is uh, the United States uh, adoption of photovoltaics. Uh, we did pretty well for a while, and then we dropped off. Uh, the yellow here is Japan, and Japan decided in 1970, uh, MIDI decided to really press hard to become the leader in photovoltaic technology, and they've, by and large, pretty much done it. And uh, the United States has allowed it to drop off. The irony, of course, is that we developed most of the technology. Uh, this is our uh, uh, new senator from Ohio, Sherrod Brown, good man. And that is our second array at the Lewis Center. The Lewis Center is, I believe I'm correct in saying, the uh, still the only entirely solar-powered building on a U.S. college campus, and it generates uh, 15 to 30 percent surplus. Uh, we're grid interconnected, so we sell that back to the grid. Uh, right after the picture was taken, Sherrod uh, said, well, David, where'd you get this equipment? I said, our choices were to buy from Germany or buy from Japan. The irony was that the technology, again, was largely developed at the NASA Glenn Space Center 24 miles away. But in Ohio, we've decided we'd rather pay unemployment and import our high-tech equipment from overseas. Isn't that interesting? That's a heck of a way to run a country. Uh, could we seize that market again and become a leader in photovoltaic technology and also wind technology and do so in a way that is to our advantage? I think so. Uh, this is the Lewis Center at Oberlin College. Can we make buildings that are entirely solar-powered, zero-discharge buildings? This, again, is not a technological issue. You're building a, a what will very likely be a platinum-rated science building here, uh, and you deserve a lot of credit for that. Pete and all of those, you that have been involved in that, uh, the planning for that, that is terrific. That is a great, but that ought to become the default setting for science buildings and for construction. Let's make buildings in this country that, in fact, are powered entirely by sunlight and efficiency. This is an NREL map of um, uh, wind potential in the United States. It's a bit dated. Actually, the, the current map is, uh, shows a good bit more wind potential, but this is the Saudi Arabia of wind in the United States. <laughs> um, we have wind power, and we found out the closer we look, the more wind potential there is. So this is a wind field near where I live in uh, that wonderful state of Ohio. This was not supposed to be a, uh, a windy area. And it's kind of an experimental thing. Amp Ohio put up a four-turbine uh, wind system, rather like yours out here, but there are four of them. Turned out it's done extremely well, better than anybody projected. So this wind field uh, is to be expanded. Another one close by in Clyde, Ohio, is to be expanded as well. But look at the numbers. This is from the uh, new Apollo project. For a $313 billion investment, give or take, you can uh, increase the gross national product by $1.4 trillion personal income by nearly uh, a trillion and create three million jobs in the process. What is the downside? And the answer is there isn't one. In Ohio, we have about a thousand firms that are involved in the solar business, uh, making a variety of things, machine businesses that are making uh, the gearboxes that sit on top of those uh, towers for windmills. Um, we could build an economy around this, no downside. Again, the wind market, like the photovoltaic market, is growing at about 40% per year worldwide. Uh, this is the wind potential from four states in the United States, North Dakota, Texas, Kansas, and South Dakota in that order. Uh, were we to exploit the wind potential 
uh, of those four states adequately. We would generate, we could generate more electricity from those four states alone than the United States uses in entirety. We have options. That doesn't get into the issue of how you move electrons to either coast. That's a whole other issue. But we have options in this country and good choices that are good economically, good for security, good for the economy, good for everything, good for the air, and good for the climate, and good for your future. This is not a technical issue. It's not an economic issue. It's a leadership issue. This issue needs to come front and center this year in 2008 and focus the nation and in this election underway and in the politics thereafter. The time to act is now. Is the public with us? Well, look at the numbers. This is a poll from 2002. 91% uh, of the public says we ought to invest more in solar and wind. And then the word mandate here, not, not, uh, not maybe I'd suggest doing this or do this by the market, but mandate. Efficient appliances, 87%. Efficient buildings, 86%. Cars, 85%. This is a poll taken uh, this past spring, a New York Times uh, uh, CBS poll. Uh, climate change, are humans driving climate change? 84% of the public now says uh, we are. And uh, we'll pay more for solar and wind electricity. 75% uh, agree to do that. Mandate fuel efficient cars, now up to 92%. Pay more for gas if the money went for research. 64% agree to do that. Trade off environment over economy. Over half the public says yes, we will do that. And this is a public that has not been given an option to know that, in fact, there should not be a trade-off here. This is not trading off the economy. This is building a better economy and improving the environment. And then can the, will the environment be worse for our children? Look, 57% of the public says, yeah, the environment for my kids and my grandkids is going to be worse than the environment that, that I inherited. This is a Yale University uh, uh, poll taken uh, this past fall. Uh, again, look at 75% or more agree to 35 mile per gallon standard. New buildings, uh, making buildings energy efficient. Uh, utilities, a 20% renewable portfolio, and so forth. There is a constituency. Then look at this one. This is a uh, UN BBC poll that came out late uh, in 2007. And the question here uh, asked in this uh, particular data set and, and several other questions was, are you willing to sacrifice for the environment and particularly for climate change? No one's asking you to do it but are you willing to do it? A majority worldwide and a big majority in the United States said, yes, we're willing to sacrifice. Blood, toil, tears, and sweat, I don't know whether it's gonna be that bad or not. Could be. Uh, it certainly will be if we wait, but the public is ready. It's not being asked to do anything. This is why Focus the Nation is so critically important and your work here is important. Let's get the country behind an agenda. Let's tell those people running for office that we're ready to move on climate issues. I want to close with a couple of thoughts. Uh, the climate issue is uh, what kind of issue? For my generation, it may look uh, one way. For yours, it may look a little bit different. But for posterity, it's going to look radically different. And the word posterity appears in the U.S. Constitution in only one place, and that's in the preamble. But there is no case law around posterity. And I'd submit that you take the, uh, the work of Thomas Jefferson and the founders of this country, and you could come up with a, a pretty easy standard that no generation, no organization, no college, no person has the right to change the biogeochemical cycles of the earth, read carbon cycle or nitrogen cycle, or impair the stability and integrity and beauty of biotic systems, the consequences of which are always going to fall as a kind of intergenerational remote tyranny on all those to follow. It'll hit your generation. It'll hit your kids' generation. It'll hit everyone after that. 
that we're now leaving, if we stay on this path, we're now leaving a long and very dark shadow on their prospects. And the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment tell us you can't deprive a person of life and liberty and property without due process. Where is due process in this? Well, there is none. Future has no standing. It has no claim to our behavior. Oh my goodness, how did my grandkids get here? <laughs> All right. All right, on the left, uh, that's Lewis. Uh, Lewis, uh, Lewis is uh, eight years old. He's full of spit and vinegar. He just uh, fell on the ice and cracked open his uh, lower jaw here, got eight stitches on his chin. And uh, he likes to play baseball. He, he's a great basketball player. He told his daddy, who's a former All-State basketball player, that he will beat him at 101 by the time he is 15. <laughs> I told his dad, he'll do it by the time he's 12. Uh, Lewis' sister is in the middle, that's Molly, she's age five, and uh, Molly is full of insouciance. Uh, we took her to a Cleveland Indians baseball game last summer, and she announced that she will be someday the shortstop for the Cleveland Indians, uh, and I wouldn't bet against her. They're full of fun and uh, humor and so forth. My, uh, my son, who, uh, my, my youngest son, who's an Episcopal priest, their daddy, uh, asked them on New Year's Day, um, uh, how they wanted to improve themselves. And uh, Molly uh, announced that her goal for 2008 was to stop biting people. <laughs> and you can tell from the, uh, the teeth there that she can, she can put a hurt on you. Uh, she told her mom and dad, though, that she didn't want to go cold turkey on this. It might take her the whole year to quit. <laughs> uh, they turned to Lewis, and uh, Lewis, again, aged eight, uh, announced that uh, he couldn't think of any way to improve himself, but he could think of lots of ways his mom and dad and sister could improve. <laughs> um, that's Ruby Kate uh, on your right. Uh, she is uh, two and a half. Her mom's an attorney, dad's a computer company executive, and they uh, live in San Francisco. Uh, she's very verbal, uh, speaks in whole sentences. Uh, sometimes you don't want to hear everything she has to say, but she's very verbal and lots of fun and laughs real easily. These kids, and for those of you who are older, uh, your children, your grandchildren have no standing. There's no voice that they can speak relative to these issues unless it's your voice and my voice. Unless we speak out loudly and clearly, they have no advocates. They have no standing. Posterity is simply a word out there, and yet it has faces. These are people. And we've relegated them to, uh, to be voiceless and to have no rights relative to this particular issue of climate. We have deprived them, or we are in the act of depriving them of life and liberty and property. Now, here's the final thought I've got. Let me come back to that in just a moment. Uh, Tom Berry, who is uh, one of the wisest people of our time, he's a Catholic theologian and philosopher. He's in his 90s, uh, probably not uh, long to live on the planet, but he's, uh, he wrote a book called The Great Work. And he says in the book that no generation ever asked for its great work. Uh, those guys who listened to Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas battle over issues of uh, slavery and sexualism and so forth in 1858 in the senatorial race in Illinois, 
their great work was to end the scourge of slavery. And they did it. They took on that task, and they didn't want to go fight at places like Shiloh or Antietam or Gettysburg, but they did it. And they faced the Holocaust of uh, civil war, and they ended the scourge of slavery. Didn't create nirvana. There was a lot of work left to be done. But that was the great work that was given to that generation. Here's what I think our great work looks like. Number one, like a patient brought into the emergency ward of a hospital, we have to stabilize the vital signs. And the most important vital sign that has got to be stabilized at this time is the carbon cycle. We have got to begin to balance the carbon books. And if we don't do that, the human future, well, there just isn't much of a human future. Number two, we've got to make a transition, a rapid transition to efficiency and renewables. We know how to do this. You're doing this here in Northfield at St. Olaf. We're doing it in, in our own way in, in Ohio, but we've got to now make this national policy, not a couple of one-off places and uh, people exerting leadership, uh, but isolated leadership. This now has got to be the default setting. We've got to see, I just came in from Phoenix this morning and uh, been in Phoenix for the last couple of days, uh, not a solar collector in sight, 340 or more days of sunshine, nobody harvesting sunlight, the best asset that they've got. We've got to make this national policy. Can we do it? Sure we can. The technology exists. The question is where the willpower exists. And whether in this year, a political year, in which we decide the future of the country, we can make this important to candidates who focus the nation and all kinds of other activities. Thirdly, we're going to have to get smart politically. We're going to have to get off our high horse politically. We are not going to make this the American century unless we agree to work with other people. We've got to make this the world century. We've got to say to the world, we're willing to make a bargain with you. You'll let us survive. We'll create more equity in the way the distribution of gains of economics and health care and education and so forth, but we'll create a global bargain. There's no other way to do it. Any one of four or five other countries could tip the carbon balance, put us past that uh, uh, runaway climate point. We can't go there. We don't have the power alone to stop that. Number four, we've got to rethink a lot of things. The word precaution has more cachet in Europe than it does in the United States, but we've got to build it more fundamentally into our policy and into our thinking. There are some things that we should not do. There are some places where we should not go. There are some kinds of reasons not to have certain kinds of policies or technologies that incur large risks. And while we're at it, we ought to begin thinking about humility within and between generations and between us and other species. This is about life writ large. We've been through a uh, kind of a bloody battle on abortion for the past uh, two or three decades. And what the abortion advocates have said that I think that we need to hear is, all of us need to hear this, is that life is important. But what they need to hear is that if life is important, all of it's important. And we've got to take care of all of it. And that means humility about how we deal with all of life. We are caretakers of it. Number four, or number five, I think we need to rethink prosperity. What it means to be prosperous. Uh, you've all seen the data on happiness, you know, the gross national product, if I can just draw a line here in the air, goes up like this. We've got more stuff than any generation ever has had, never will have again. But what happened to happiness, the thing that our stuff was supposed to give us? Well, happiness comes up here to 1957. It was improving, 
1957, all the studies show that it kind of peaked out and it flatlines over here, bumps up and down a little bit. And so we've got this gap between what we have and how happy we are. Well, there's no surprise in that. We've known for a long time stuff doesn't make us happy. Community does. And so what does this, uh, uh, the phrase prosperous way down, by the way, comes from a book, uh, Howard Odom, one of the great ecologists uh, of the country, the brother of Eugene Odom, uh, and his wife Elizabeth wrote uh, in the uh, 18, or probably 1990s. And they describe a very different kind of world, this prosperous way down. What's it look like? Well, what's this world look like that is carbon neutral? Well, maybe it's a world with lots of front porches. And maybe it's a world with great baseball leagues and really vibrant downtowns and lots of small farms and restaurants serving locally generated food and lots of local businesses and more bike trails, fewer freeways, more schools, fewer malls. Uh, is this a world we could make? Yeah, I think so. And we could make that world, we could power that world with sunshine. We know how to do this. Not, this is not new to anybody in this room. And then finally, this is a political year. And what Focus the Nation is about uh, and what uh, the President's Climate Action Plan is about is rethinking politics. Because what failed us, it wasn't really the economy that failed us on this issue, that brought us to the brink of uh, potentially catastrophic climate change. It wasn't the economy that failed us. It wasn't our ingenuity that failed us. What failed us was our political system. And whether you're conservative or liberal doesn't really matter. What we have to do now is come together around a very different view of politics, politics as trusteeship. And that's an ancient conservative concept that I think liberals could live with. It's a concept that says that we're simply trustees in this current generation between a distant past and a distant future. And our job is to pass on that entailed inheritance of a beautiful, fecund, wonderful planet with a stable climate on to future generations. That's our job. That's our great work. Thank you. Hey, that, that's a great thing to do. Uh, and there, but you know, when you buy, all of us buy stuff, buy Energy Star. If you have to buy something, if you can't repair what you, you've already got, buy Energy Star, buy efficiency. If you've got to buy a car, buy energy efficient cars and appliances. Vote with your dollars. The, um, in a political year, though, uh, being as this is a year we'll elect a president, and I think that this is the president that will be make or break on climate change. We don't have... Uh, we've spent our margin of error. And so now we've got to figure out how to rapidly move in this other direction. That's the whole drift of the uh, PCAP document. Spent our margin of error. The next administration, we're saying, we're saying this to all the candidates. We're meeting with them individually. We're saying that as you come out of the starting blocks, you cannot stumble. There are some things you have got to get right. You don't have time to dawdle around. There's no lateral movement. We've spent the 30-year margin of error. Now we've got to get down to business. So uh, in a political year, write your congresspersons, write your senator, write uh, campaign speeches. Make sure that as candidates come through uh, Minnesota or wherever you may live, uh, that you go there. Be political this year and every year thereafter. This is a political failure. So do all the things, uh, absolutely. Uh, clothes lines, uh, energy efficient cars, compact fluorescent light bulbs, all those things. Do those things. but be this year political. I think the environmental movement has been for way too long uh, apolitical. We thought that somehow politics would sort of take care of itself. And I think we made a huge mistake in that. 
Now we have to get political and make sure that climate change is on the public agenda and in a way that leaves no one out. So uh, Van Jones' effort to get uh, green jobs, uh, let, let's take things like that. Let's say, okay, can we, can we build jobs at the bottom of the society? Can we auction allowances for carbon dioxide emissions so that money goes back and helps the poorest among us and also funds research and development? Uh, we're not nearly as rich as we think we are in, in a lot of ways, but thanks for that question. Uh, let's, let's, uh, there's just a lot of things to do here. Yes. Uh, next question. Had a hand up over here. <laughs> you, you know, uh, uh, I guess my question I, is how do you know how to communicate like words and how do you know that's going to be actually Well, uh, let, me, let me be real honest. I wish, I mean, I, I understand that all the, the problems Al Gore has, but I wish he had run because this is the defining issue of our time, period. And he decided not to run, or has up to this point decided not to run. Uh, he was the one person among all of them that really felt this in the marrow of his bones, in my opinion. Uh, I won't name a candidate. I, I'll just say that our, our experience with the candidates has been varying and, and the ones that have been willing to meet with us. Uh, I do understand that Fred Thompson doesn't think it's an issue. Uh, Mike Huckabee is a really, really nice guy. Um, uh, but... <laughs> Yeah, you know, the, the world's only 6,000 years old. Uh, we don't, um, so, uh, but uh, anyway, thanks for the question. <laughs> yeah, over here. You mean our, our project, Climate Action Plan. Uh, the, um, well, actually, actually if, you, if you download the document, and, and, and do it, and drop me an email, tell me what you think about it. Uh, the final document comes out in September. We're going to continue to meet with candidates, and we're, we're meeting with folks overseas. We're trying to make this the, the consensus document about the first 100 days of climate action in the administration. Lots of people working on, on longer-term issues. That, that's not what we chose to do. Uh, your point, and thanks for making this point. It's a really good point. And I think it's the point that uh, Churchill was getting at in the blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And, and this is my opinion, and this does appear in the phraseology of, of the PCAP document, uh, which makes 300 suggestions. Um, we believe that the president, the next president, uh, needs to call for sacrifice. And I think the hard truth is that we're not going to buy our way out of the mess in which we've, we're in. We're not going to build our way out. And that's not an argument against uh, compact resin light bulbs or Priuses or anything else. It's just say that I think you're right, that we're not going to purchase our way out of this. If you have to buy something, buy it green. But the best, the greenest thing, uh, as Pete was telling me uh, today, the best, the greenest building is the one you don't build. And the greenest product is the one you don't buy. 
uh, begin reshaping the economy in radically different directions. Now, this raises another issue of, um, and we, we've wrestled with this. We've hired uh, a couple of PR firms, a Republican firm and a Democratic firm, to help us understand what, uh, how, do you, how do you talk to people about hard things? Uh, wh what do you say? And there are a lot of people who believe, uh, you know, that uh, Jack Nicholson line, that people can't handle the truth. And so uh, for those you soft pedal this issue, I'm not in that camp, but we're trying to understand how you put this in a way that doesn't just launch people into despair, but ask them, don't blow this off. Don't just dismiss it. Have the courage to stare down the barrel, listen to what IPCC is saying. Read the Stern Review. Pay attention to the science. Uh, when the uh, head of IPCC uh, gave the report, or gave the, uh, the summary uh, of the fourth report just before the Bali meeting, he said, you know, you've been to the doctor four times. We've told you, you've got to go on a carbon diet. If you don't do it, you're going to kill yourself. We can continue to refine the numbers, but it's not going to add up to any particular different message. We've told you. You've, you've, you've asked us. We've told you the truth. Uh, and we've gotten that from so many other people. But how do you frame that to the public in a way that galvanizes the public? And, and my assumption is, in, in, as being one of the, the starters of this effort, is that a president has to, at this point, summon us to greatness. We need to hear that in the way that, say, Franklin Roosevelt spoke to the American public during the Depression. And what Roosevelt, in his 100 days, it was not particularly successful historically. But what it did do was restore the American confidence in government and the fact that we can come together and do things. We can solve problems. We've heard for 30 years now or longer that government's a problem, and sometimes it is, but it's not always a problem. And the market is where we come together to say, or we don't come together, we, we, we individually go into the marketplace and we say I or me or mine. But government is where we, we come in collectively, we say we and ours, and I hope posterity. We only do that through governments. And governments do things that, uh, that markets just aren't going to do. But anyway, thanks for the question. I went off on a tangent there, but I think you're exactly right. Uh, and I think we're, we're trying to frame that in a way that, that doesn't just turn people off. Oh, my God, that's sackcloth and, and uh, ruin and uh, gloom and doom and so forth, and I'm out of here. I'm headed for the bar. And there, there are good reasons to go to bars, but uh, uh, despair is probably not one of them. Anyway, th thanks for that question. They subsidize it. Uh, we have 104 reactors in this country, and we would have zero if it had been left to the market. That's because we don't price coal adequately. And so both with nuclear and with coal, we have a very different kind of economics. We tell solar power and efficiency, oh, you compete on the rigors of the market. But over here, we socialize coal and we socialize uh, nuclear power. It's just dishonest economics. It always has been. And if you, you, there are any number of studies that show if you, uh, if we were as efficient in the use of energy as present technology, just off the shelf technology now allows us to be, we could cut off and, and the range of the bookend of the estimates start at a third and go up to two thirds of the energy we now use is simply wasted. 
uh, Amory Lovins in his uh, report on, on cars shows that only 1% of the fuel that goes in the gas tank actually moves the driver. And we can do better than that. Uh, and the technology allows us to do better than that. So in a lot of ways, what we need to do is to free up ingenuity. Now, governments don't do some things well. I mean, governments are, are terrible at trying to micromanage anything. We all, we all know that. But governments do macro things really well. The Internet is a result of government meddling, right? Uh, there are a lot of technologies that have allowed uh, or been developed by government R&D grants and so forth in the space business and so forth. But anyway, th thanks for the question. I, I think here the, the bottom line is there ought to be a bottom line. And it ought to be transparent. The playing field ought to be level. And so subsidies under the table to nuclear power or coal or solar or anything else is simply inappropriate. Let's have honest economics. Let's have prices that tell us the truth about what we do. Well, it, it could. Uh, let me refer you to, to one book, and it's called Small is Profitable. Uh, you can get it from Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, rmi.org, and I think you can download the whole thing, but it, it is a classic piece of work. It's a big, uh, oversized book that gives a case for what you're describing. It's called Distributed Energy. You know, and if I ask you, uh, uh, how many of you have mainframe computers? You, you know, again, nobody has a mainframe computer. But all of you have notebook computers and laptop computers. This one back here is 2.2 pounds, but it does everything that my uh, six-pound laptop at home does. Uh, and think of an energy system that is operates by the same sort of network uh, logic uh, and structure. So that instead of having, let's say, a few very large power plants, and, and you know, if, if we were to you know, lock the doors up there and we were to constitute ourselves as an Al-Qaeda group, Whoops, before I go further, are there any FBI agents in the room? Uh, you know, we, and we say, let's bring the grid down. Could we do it? You bet we could. And it wouldn't be that hard to do. And we'd figure, after studying the grid a little bit, we'd find out that there are four or five nodes or places that if you can cause havoc in those places, you can collapse the whole thing. Uh, one of the most depressing days I ever spent, and I've spent a few, uh, was with the Defense Policy uh, Planning Board folks and or people that are on that group, and they were talking about the vulnerabilities of the grid, and they say there's no way we can protect it. No way at all. Cannot be done. And so uh, they say it's not a matter of whether the grid goes dark, but when it goes dark. And they know it's being targeted. Have a nice day. And the other part of this is when it goes down, it can't be brought up quickly. And the reasons here are, are highly technical, but it's, it's rather like seeding an organism. But it's not like flipping a switch. 
And so uh, the grid could go down for years. That is possible. And according to them, not just possible, it's likely. So distributed energy, you, you know, uh, windmills, photovoltaic arrays. Uh, city of Sacramento uh, years ago began to rent or buy rooftop space and installing photovoltaic arrays on, on rooftops. So, and uh, the building I showed you here, we are entirely solar powered. Uh, we're grid interconnected, so we sell excess electricity back in the grid. We're a net metering state. So we sell power back on the, uh, and you are too, I believe. So you sell power back on the grid, but you could very easily design local grids uh, or buildings or campuses that are pretty much independent. You're buffered. And the theory of resilience is one we ought to apply to the grid. Unfortunately, it just was never applied. And part of that's the way the grid evolved, the inverted block rate and all those kind of things that we got from Samuel Insel way back when. And, but we, we designed a system that is now uh, not only third world uh, uh, kind of grid in a first world country, but it's also one that lacks resilience and is really vulnerable to disruption. And so in all of these things, you think about a uh, post-carbon world, what does that look like? Well, I would put what you're describing right at the top of the list. Now, what I wouldn't do is to say that as we uh, build a distributed world and more local resilience, we slam the door on other folks. Let's make this a world that is still interconnected because we've got to get through this bottleneck. Uh, step back with me for just a minute, or step up with me. Let's take a 35,000-foot view of the situation. E.O. Wilson, the great Harvard biologist, calls this a, uh, a bottleneck era. We've got to get through this bottleneck, and it's going to be more constraining than we've ever been through before. We have some assets we didn't have before, but this is going to be, this is going to be one close call, if I am reading it correctly. But we want to come through this bottleneck era still with those wonderful virtues of democracy, fairness, decency, and justice. And we want those enhanced. We want a world that works for everybody. We want a world that works for posterity, the people yet to be born. So we've got to come through this era and kind of, and we're not going to be able to keep a lot of the things we had uh, in the past. Uh, frankly, I'm willing to, you know, give up a lot of shopping malls. Uh, I'd give up a lot of the sprawl between here and Minneapolis. I'd give up some of the sprawl in my county. I'd, uh, there's a whole lot less television I could live with. I mean, I mean, you, you make your own list, but a world in which we actually uh, begin to think about long-term survivability and resilience. That's a different kind of economy, and that's not sackcloth and ashes. That's a very robust and very resilient kind of economy. But anyway, thanks for the thanks for the question. One last question. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you have any insight or thoughts no. about <laughs> <laughs> or thoughts about uh, citizen power for change and social class, because it seems to me that there are there's a large number of people in the United that don't really have the financial luxury to think about this or to make choices that would, you know, change anything. And I mean, I, I know it's such a poverty, not as much as small poverty, but yeah. Well, I, I think you you've put the question I think rightly, and, and that is uh, your. One of the difficulties in dealing with this, uh, it seems to me, is this issue of justice and what we've seen. I didn't do this in the slides here, but. If you're in the top uh, one-tenth of one percent in terms of income in this country, or you're the son or daughter of somebody who is, you've done real well in the past uh, 20 or 30 years. And this is not just George Bush. I think it intensified under George Bush, but it is not. this began a long time ago. So the income distribution, I, I believe I'm correct in saying that we're roughly where we were in terms of distribution of income 
where we were in 1929. If you're a single mom and you're supporting two or three kids, you've got a tough road to hoe. Life is hard for you. You're working two or three different jobs and trying to keep these kids together. Uh, if you're African-American and unemployed in Cleveland, uh, your chances of being in jail are real good. Uh, we've got a couple of million people in the penal system in this country. This is no way to run a country. This is no way to run a country. And I don't care whether you're left or right, liberal, because it doesn't really matter, but we can all agree though, those numbers don't work. So as you think about climate change, is there a way to build a climate-neutral world or carbon-neutral world that helps to promote social justice? And frankly, I don't think there's any way to get one without getting the other. I think we have to ask ourselves some really hard questions about how, how come it is that so many have, or so few have so much and so many have so little. And I think it's time to ask that question. This is a, a presidential election year. Uh, why is it that K Street has such dominance over what passes for public policy? How was it that that bridge between public preferences, you saw the poll data here, and there's an endless amount of it, but how was it that that, that bridge that connects public preferences with public policy got broken? Why is it that our views about so many things have no bearing? Why is it our, our public debates are so shallow and so trivial? And why do we miss the opportunity to bring people together around issues? I mean, I really do want to, I, let me tell you one story and then I'll quit. Uh, during the, the 04 election, I gave some talks down, down south and I had a, they, they were not popular <laughs> talks, I was the liberal. And so uh, I had a woman stand up and say, you know, I just can't, it was a large audience two, three times the size of this one. She said, I just can't vote for John Kerry because of stand on abortion. And then she went on at some length, very heartfelt. And, and I said, well, um, let me respond to you. That let me concede a couple things. Let me concede, as apparently you believe, that life begins uh, at conception. I don't know that it does. I mean, who knows what, but I'll, I'll concede that. And let's say that life is absolute. I'll concede that, and I believe that. And thirdly, if, if, you, if it's your choice that you want white guys in dark robes to make your reproductive decisions, fine. I mean, I'll, I'll concede that. But you've got to concede the following things to me, that life doesn't end at birth, that every kid that's born has a right to be sheltered, loved, cared for, educated, fed. And that's a right. And that uh, assault weapons ought to be banned. They're only good for killing people. And that the war in Iraq and war generally uh, ought to be stopped. That's about killing people and a lot of innocent people. We know that now. And that the Endangered Species Act has got to be supported. Uh, that's about life writ large. And the death penalty has got to be ended. That's killing people. So if you can't give me those five things, you don't have a principle. You've got an ideology. Principle doesn't let you pick and choose. And so uh, we had a debate. As I was walking out of the auditorium, I had to go to the airport. And as I was walking out of the auditorium, she stopped. She was uh, tears in her eyes. She said, you know, my preacher never talked to me like that. I said, well, you, maybe he ought to talk to you like that. But in this, I began thinking about this. Isn't there a debate that we can have across left and right about the value of life? And if life is an absolute, then let's protect life and all life to come. That's about posterity, and that's about climate change. Because if you take this issue of climate change and you deal with it with a little bit different verbiage, this is the issue of abortion writ large. We're aborting whole generations that will never come to live on the planet or never live well on what's left of the planet because we've deprived them of life 
of liberty and property and ecological resilience and a stable climate. Do you follow what I'm saying? We can have this debate. We know how to talk about these things, but we don't. And so this issue, you, you've raised a good, you obviously got me on a hot button issue, but we, we've, we've got, why don't we use this to talk about things that are really important? And let me say one other thing. I'll bet every one of you in this room know a whole lot more about Anna Nicole Smith than you need to know. You know what I mean? Why is it that we are marinated in trivia? The planet, you know, the day, it struck me that the day the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment Report came out in 2005, that's the largest assessment ever made of ecological trends on the planet. You know where that was in the New York Times, our national newspaper? That was page eight, if I remember correctly, in about six column inches. Guess what was page one? Terry Schiavo. The fact the planet is dying, page eight, six column inches, uh, I'm sorry, but we need to pay attention to things. And this gets you into other things like who controls the media. That's a whole other thing. Hey, thank you very much. You've been a great audience. Thanks.